From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll explore why Wisconsin matters in the upcoming 2024 election and why it means so much attention will be focused here. I think it's great for the state of Wisconsin. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, having this kind of spotlight on the state is a good thing. We'll check in with the Milwaukee County Transit System about how the new bus rapid transit line is going. Plus, tell you about the unique things you can see on a sculpture tour in Eau Claire. We've got everything from chainsaw sculptures on there to scrap metal to, you know, the really expensive bronze, you know, fine art pieces uh, to even a couple that were made from recycled tires. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Eight candidates took the stage in Milwaukee last night for the first Republican presidential primary debate. Donald Trump, the party's frontrunner, did not join them. Wisconsin is a key state for both Republicans and Democrats in the 2024 election. According to strategists, winning Wisconsin could mean a path to the White House for either party. WUWM's Mayan Silver spoke to strategists on both sides of the aisle about why Wisconsin matters and why we're seeing such a razor-thin margin in this swing state. We'll hear first from Wisconsin Republican strategist Bill McCaution. What's the most important thing you think people would need to know about Wisconsin politically right now? It's still competitive. It's at the top of the ticket. We tend to have close races. The 2016 presidential race was close. The 2020 presidential race was close. The 2018 gubernatorial race was close, so uh, at the top of the ticket, Wisconsin is still very, very competitive. Let's go into that a little bit. Um, Republicans are really paying attention to Wisconsin right now. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that attention? I think it's great for the state of Wisconsin. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, having this kind of spotlight on the state is a good thing. Uh, I was in support of the Democratic National Convention being here a couple years ago. It didn't quite work out the way they had planned because of COVID, but I'm very excited to have another GOP presidential debate here and then the National Convention here for the first time ever next summer. I think think that'll draw tremendous attention to the state of Wisconsin. It will help the GOP nominee introduce themselves and, and try and close that gap with Democrats. Uh, at least on a statewide level, and and it probably will be beneficial to our U.S. Senate candidate, whoever that ultimately ends up being. The convention is happening in Milwaukee. That's a traditionally Democratic stronghold. What is the GOP aiming to get? Like, let's just start out with with Milwaukee from having that convention there. Well, we we, want to connect with, reconnect with suburban voters in particular. We, We lost some suburban voters in 2020 and again in 2022, and uh, you know, with the right nominee, I think we can capture those folks back. Uh, we want somebody who is positive, forward-looking, who has an agenda for the future, and uh, hopefully our primary process will produce that type of nominee. Let's dig into that a little bit. Republicans, you know, they're putting attention into Wisconsin now, but there have been some arguably blunders, potentially, when it comes to early voting, the messaging about absentee ballots in the in the pandemic, things like that, the Gableman probe, the fake electors. 
that whole situation? How, what are some of these things and how are they impacting the Republican Party in Wisconsin? Well, I think we're too slow to react uh, in a lot of uh, situations, in, including the, uh, the changes in the voting rules. There were some modest changes uh, as a result of COVID. Democrats took full advantage of those. Uh, early voting was expanded. Mail-in voting was expanded, and Republicans did not take advantage of those. So that was a tool that was available to us, and we chose not to take advantage of it. And the other side beat us at. So since that time, we've been playing catch-up on the on the infrastructure side of campaigns. We spend roughly the same amount that Democrats do on on the paid media side, but they were far better at the infrastructure, and they were able to turn out their voters. They got voters to the polls earlier, so that they could go get new voters, uh, you know, right up to election day. And we Republicans were focused almost exclusively on one day, the election day, and and that's not enough. If you're down by two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand votes going into election day, it's pretty hard to make up in the state of Wisconsin. Well, of course, it's not just catching up. It's also negative messaging from from the GOP's own head of, you know, the operation. Yeah, there's no de- denying that Donald Trump was opposed to early voting. And, and, and I think it cost us at least one Senate seat, if not two, in the state of Georgia. Uh, you know, again, those are tools that were available. Whether we like them or didn't like them, the fact that the other side was able to use them suggested we should have been doing the same thing. And again, we were too slow to react and it probably cost us the U.S. Senate. It certainly has impacted us here in the state of Wisconsin, but not as much as Democrats' ability to turn out their voters in Milwaukee and Dane County. Democrats are rolling up significant margins in Milwaukee and Dane County. In the in the last election cycle, it was nearly 300,000 votes. And it's tough for Republicans to make that up over the the remaining 70 counties. So Republicans have to do a better job in both Dane and Milwaukee County. They can't get beat 80 to 20 or 75-25 if they want to win. What else do you think is contributing to Republicans sort of like treading water a little bit? There, there was some turnover in the Wisconsin GOP. It was Mark Jefferson for a long time. Now it's Brian Schimming. Can you talk about that? Well, Mark Jefferson is still the executive director. Brian Schimming's the chairman. Uh, so he's a new chairman, and I think he's out there doing a good job getting the Republican message out. But the truth is we have to have a positive message. If we want to win statewide elections here in the state of Wisconsin, we need a nominee who will have a positive vision for the future uh, that the U.S. Senate candidate may be able to capitalize on and, and potentially give Tammy Baldwin a serious race here in uh, 2024 as well. But the, the more we demean people and, and uh, are, are taking after them on a personal basis, that turns voters off. doesn't matter if they're in the suburbs or in urban areas or rural areas. At the end of the day, people want somebody that they can look up to, that they uh, have a positive vision for the, for the country. And, and they're tired of all the toxicity in politics, whether it's from Democrats or Republicans. Most voters are just worn out by that. If, if, if a... Republican candidate presents a positive vision, not only in the primary, but definitely in the general against Joe Biden next year. They're going to do just fine in Wisconsin. What would be the factors that you would say are the uphill battles right now for the GOP? Every every second that we spend talking about the 2020 election is a is a second lost because we're not talking about the economy. And at the end of the day, voters always vote their pocketbook first. 
so we are wasting enormous time not talking about the economy. Two-thirds of Americans say the country's heading in the wrong direction. 75% give Biden low marks on his handling of the economy. That should be our number one attack line against this administration. And yet, here we are beating each other up in the primary and talking about what happened three years ago. That's not a winning strategy. Gotcha. So if you were, if you were to summarize the, the temperature of Wisconsin right now, like the political climate, what, what, what would you say? It's calmer than it was. You know, Governor Evers' numbers were really good on the most recent Marquette Law School poll. Uh, he was in the upper 50s for job approval. I think legislative Republicans get good marks. The fact that they were able to, legislative Republicans were able to work out big deals with the governor on shared revenue, on school funding, on transportation, on some environmental issues, including PFAS, uh, that speaks well to both of them. So the governor gets some credit for that. Legislative Republicans clearly get credit for that. And frankly, that's what Wisconsin voters want. Whether you're a Republican, Independent, or Democrat, you want the legislature and the governor to get stuff done. And uh, in the last several months, this legislature has been able to get stuff done with this governor. 2020 was unique. I mean, very unique, because you had a pandemic you had racial justice protests and unrest, and you also had like a, a huge economic impact. You had all those things kind of conflating at the same time. You, you said it was calmer in Wisconsin. What are you expecting going forward? Uh, you know, I hope there's an unbelievable convention for Republicans next summer where everyone comes out of there united. Uh, you know, and there's some doubt about that. You know, folks that are not with Trump, will they come back to him if he ends up winning the nomination? And the reverse is also true. If Trump doesn't win the nomination, will Trump supporters support the person who ultimately does? And that's an open question at this point. It's a lot of work for uh, GOP chairman across the country and for our national chairperson, Ronna McDaniel. So we'll see how that plays itself out. The primaries will be a pretty good indicator as to whether or not Republicans are going to have a united front next July in Milwaukee, and my hope is that they will. The people who are kind of at this point discounting Wisconsin for Republicans and saying, you know, it's a, it's a really good climate for, for Joe Biden in Wisconsin, what would you say to that? Most recent Marquette poll shows it's a one-point race in the state of Wisconsin. I think Wisconsin will always be competitive. I think Republicans will have a better chance of winning this state if someone other than Donald Trump is the nominee. But, you know, he's proven uh, to be a pretty tough out a lot of times. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But uh, I, I think if we present a younger, more forward looking nominee, doesn't matter if it's male or female, that we will have we'll be in very good position to win the state of Wisconsin and the 10 electoral votes here. Bill McCashin, thanks for sharing your views. Thanks for having me. Bill McCashin is a Wisconsin Republican Party strategist and the former chief of staff for Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson. Next, we'll hear how Democrats plan to narrow the political margin and mobilize voters in Wisconsin. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with Ben Wickler, the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. What's important to know about Wisconsin politically heading into 2024? The thing everyone should understand about Wisconsin is that it is 
most of the time incredibly close, even when you think it can't possibly be close. Four of the last six presidential elections have had margins of victory under one percentage point. Our Senate race last year, one percentage point margin. The governor's race, 2018, 1.1 point. The, the, the attorney general that year, 0.6 percentage points. Most elections here come down to margins of a few tens of thousands of votes or even less. And that means that even when there's a bazillion things going on that you think must fundamentally reshape the political landscape, both sides start at about 48%. And it becomes a question of turnout on each side and of persuasion of a handful of incredibly powerful people in the middle or people who are conflicted and believe, you know, agree with each side about some things. We're a state with ticket splitters. There are about 4.5% of Wisconsinites uh, voting for Ron Johnson and Tony Evers at the same time in 2022. And in 2018, one in 10 Wisconsin voters was voting for Tammy Baldwin and Scott Walker at the same time. There are people who are cross-pressured. And so all of these huge national debates wind up boiling down to small shifts in the wind in Wisconsin that can tip the entire country. And I don't think there's any other state in the nation that is this closely divided for this long in this many different elections. So that's, that is the core political fact of the state of Wisconsin. It is almost a perfect toss-up. That's the starting line. So where is Democrats' focus at this point? The only way to win in Wisconsin is to try to do everything. That means organizing in suburbs that are moving in democratic directions and in rural areas to prevent them from shifting to the right um, and actually try to gain ground a point or two here and there can make a huge difference statewide and to drive up turnout and margins in the, the bigger cities and population centers, the Madisons and the Milwaukee's. You have to organize everywhere across lines of race and ethnicity, across gender and generation, and certainly across geography. Uh, if you leave any stone unturned, then the other party is going to find those voters and make a case to them that you're not answering. And that could be the margin that decides the entire election. So it is a full court press in every square inch of the state of Wisconsin, pretty much 24 seven. What's the Democrats' secret sauce of this infrastructure? There was a big win with the Protosewitz race, 11 points. There's a big get-out-the-vote effort that includes early voting. Republicans are just getting in the game on that with Bank Your Vote. What's the Democrats' secret sauce? They say fortune favors the prepared mind. And at the Democratic Party, we just never stop preparing. So we have a, a full-time organizing program, relational organizing, door-to-door uh, -door canvassing with neighbors talking to their neighbors in the mold of the original Obama campaign, digital organizing, all the different pieces that we run year-round. We run it in local elections. We run it in statewide Supreme Court elections. We run it in presidential elections and midterms, and we just don't stop. So that's the first thing. The second piece of the special sauce is actually kind of about the other side. There's this profound contrast between a level of extremism on the right, especially around the issue of abortion, and the common sense, let's just get things done approach that most Wisconsinites have and that most Democrats have. And that contrast, I think, really was on display in the 2020 presidential race, in the 2022 midterms. You know, look at Governor Evers versus Tim Michaels. And now we're seeing it again for 2024. That, to me, is the key, is making clear to voters that Democrats 
are in their communities, understand what they're going through, are working to address the actual issues in their lives, to bring costs down, to help wages grow, to have the kinds of great schools and, and great access to healthcare that allows people to raise their families in the communities where they grew up and to, to age with dignity in place. All those things, that's what Democrats spend their time on. And Republicans are trying to ban books and ban abortion and demonize kids in their schools and these things that are just, they don't make any sense. And most voters don't like that stuff. And, you know, abortion, really most of all, is this issue that is so personal for so many people, regardless of how you feel about abortion, what your faith tells you, the idea that politicians should barge into your clinic when you're making the most personal decisions with your doctor and your family about you know, what you're going to do with your body, people want to make those decisions for themselves. They don't want politicians telling them what to do. And there's a message around freedom that connects to reproductive freedom and to uh, democracy and other core elements of freedom that Democrats are able to make in this election. So it's organizing all the time, and it's this core message of radical extremism, especially on abortion versus common sense. So what is your take on the Republicans now putting a lot of attention on Wisconsin, both with this debate and with the convention coming to Milwaukee? There's no way that the GOP retakes the White House without winning Wisconsin. And that basic fact of electoral college math is very, very central to the GOP's national plans. They've put their first presidential primary debate in Wisconsin, their national convention in Wisconsin, their bank your vote program is piloting in Wisconsin. They know they have to win the Badger State. And for the Biden campaign and for Democrats, that means we have to mount our most powerful defense in this state and also go on offense in the state legislature, in the House, uh, and reelecting Tammy Baldwin. I mean, everything winds up circling back to this one state in the Midwest that has wildly disproportionate consequences for national politics, uh, where a, a very small number of voters in a, in a country where, you know, tens, more than 100 million people are likely to cast ballots, it could wind up all coming down to, you know, 20 or 30,000 voters spread across the eight congressional districts of Wisconsin who tip the whole thing. That means that voters in Wisconsin have extraordinary power to shape the future of the world. And it means that both the GOP and Democrats are going to do everything they can to persuade and turn out every voter they can find. I talked to Democratic strategist Thad Nation, and he said that the Republican State Party is in shambles and the State Democratic Party in Wisconsin is widely regarded as one of the best parties in the country. He said the Republican Party in Wisconsin, like in many states, is at war with itself, two to three different factions, and they're struggling with fundraising. Democrats have mastered the rewriting of Wisconsin campaign finance laws back in 2016, where there's no limits on how much an individual can give to a party and how much the party can give to a candidate. So I guess my question is, what's your take on all that? Republicans have been in a state of civil war ever since Trump lost. A faction of the state Republican Party as nationally has stuck with the big line, doubled and tripled down on it, insisted on these sham investigations like Michael Gableman's investigation, uh, claiming that there was fraud that they were going to uncover. And other Republicans have said, no, this is a road to electoral ruin and it's not true and we need to do things differently. And they've never reconciled that battle. And that has cost them politically. It, meant, it's, it has meant that they haven't had the level of unity that would have produced success like Republicans had in most states in 2022. In Wisconsin, they lost the governor, attorney general, and secretary of state races in a midterm uh, where they were heavily favored. 
So, and and at the Democratic Party, I think we we really do have an, a an extraordinary level of unity and strength from our grassroots all the way through our, our staff and our uh, elected leaders in the in the state party. Um, I'm so lucky to work with an extraordinary group of people. That is all true, and at the same time, that is not destiny when it comes to 2024. And our State's political history is a story of rapid reversals and rapid shifts, and the national GOP is clearly learning from their mistakes now that they've launched their early vote program, I, now that they've put their national convention here. This is not the 2020 uh, wild moment with their convention jumping from one state to the next. They are, they are aiming to win. So I want to make sure that every Democrat in the state takes this election just as seriously as 2020. More seriously, we need to treat this as another five alarm fire, even though we've gotten used to a lot of five alarm fires in the state. Uh, this is going to be another full court press. Ben Wickler, thanks for chatting with us at WWM. Such a pleasure to join you. Thanks, Wayne. Ben Wickler is the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. You can hear both these conversations and find our coverage from last night's debate at wuwm.com. In about 20 minutes, we're going to help you plan a trip to Eau Claire and tell you about some of the amazing public art you can see there, including a giant sculpture of a shark and pieces made from used tires. But first, we'll learn how the new bus rapid transit route is going in Milwaukee County. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. A big change to the Milwaukee County transit system has been up and running for nearly three months now. A bus rapid transit line has been added between downtown Milwaukee and the west side with the goal of saving riders time. WUWM's Chuck Kornbach checks in with Tom Winter with the transit system to see how the Connect One service is going and what changes could be coming to the bus system. He starts by explaining some changes to the bus schedule. You'll see some different times, arrival times, in terms of what's on the printed schedule, just because we're adding that time into it. But the frequency itself will be pretty similar. Uh, if we look at it from a, like a schedule writing standpoint, uh, we're only probably adding a few minutes from one route to the other end. Uh, and that really might, uh, in a kind of a minutia type of a way, change the, the frequency of service from 10 minutes to 10.1 minutes or something of that sort. So it's really not going to be a, a case where it's going to jump from 10 to 15 or something of that sort. So it's, it's primarily just about let's give the driver the time that they should get to be able to run on time to uh, accommodate an uh, unplanned detour that happened at the east end of the route. So still the 10-minute uh, intervals, is it 15 though minutes at some times of the day, is that right? Right. During the, it's 10 minutes basically from 6 in the morning until 6 in the evening, uh, and then increases slightly to about 15 minutes until kind of the mid-early evening, and then it climbs to 20 minutes and so forth later in, in 30 minutes uh, around midnight. The BRT connects with many buses. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any scheduled changes to make the join times for the riders any more convenient? Yeah, that, that's something we do. Every quarter, we basically update schedules in the March, June, September, and December. So 
one of the things that we looked at is how can we make those connections better. But part of that, I think we're going to be collecting some more data in terms of an origin destination survey starting in September. And that will help us understand really how people are using the routes to connect from, say, the Route 14 on the east side or the 35, for example, on 35th Street. When there was the gold line, people could go down Wisconsin and north, close to UWM, as I recall. Right. Now there has to be transfers. Is, are you tweaking? Has that been a problem that people that used to be able to ride sort of an L-shaped uh, route uh, now have to transfer? And, and what are you doing to uh, accommodate any concerns from those folks? Mm -hmm. Uh, anecdotally, we, we know, we've heard some people that they have to make a, an additional transfer. Sometimes if they're really making a long trip, say out to Brookfield Square, even a second transfer. Um, part of that isn't so much the schedule per se, it's just the fact that the, the BRT you know, doesn't clearly have the same endpoints as the Gold Line did. So again, we, we want to collect more data from passengers, which will then show us where they board, where they alight, where are they walking from? Where are they walking to after they complete their trip? And then we can have kind of a solid guidance to know, yes, we need to look at this or that solution. I was surprised a little bit to, mm -hmm. to see Waukesha Metro buses running on Blue Mound Road in Milwaukee County as far as about 95th. How's the uh, deal working with Waukesha Metro? Uh, it's very good. We have a, a long-standing uh, relationship with them over the years, going back to uh, Route 10, if you have ridden that long, they would fund that service as an extension of the old Route 10 and then it became the Gold Line. So when BRT, the Connect One, was approved, we had a sort of internal discussion about, well, how do we serve that uh, segment of the route that was the Gold Line along Blue Mound? And we had some suggestions about, well, we could run a short little shuttle bus between the regional medical center to the county line and then meet up with their route. Uh, which seemed a little clunky and kind of goes to that extra transfer problem. So we worked with Waukesha Metro and uh, suggested that they have their route come to the endpoint of the BRT at the Regional Medical Center. And they agreed to that. We've heard from them in the past that they have a lot of riders that want to get to the Regional Medical Center who work there. So it was kind of a, a good solution uh, in that regard. The primary connection is probably over at 95th and Blue Mound or else at 92nd in Connell inside the, the medical center. So should customers feel satisfied with how that's working, or is that something that's going to be studied by uh, your agency studying this uh, route issue? No, absolutely. I mean, I literally was emailed from my counterpart over at Metro uh, this morning regarding ridership data that they would be will share with each other. In addition, uh, we're looking to install some uh, bus shelter kind of near at 95th and Blue Mound transfer points, so people have a way to wait outside the rain and such. We're always committed to sort of, how can we make those things better? We'd of course love it to be able to make those changes quickly as possible, but it, it kind of goes back to, we make adjustments just like in Metro basically every quarter. So you do have that sort of time lag before. Back to the BRT on its own on Wisconsin Avenue, sometimes, What's on the uh, kiosk information as far as arrival time of the bus is right on time. Mm -hmm. Notice a few times when it's when things are running late beyond the posted time. What's the biggest cause of that delay? Right. So one of the things that we were noticing at the time was 
the information on the, on the schedule that the bus was supposed to arrive was also displaying on the time on those signs along with the real-time estimate. And so that was creating that kind of confusion about when is the bus arriving, why isn't it arriving? It says it's supposed to arrive on the schedule, but it's not there. So one of the things we dealt with was to actually remove that scheduled information and only show the real-time prediction for when the bus should arrive. I wrote on a Friday a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. where at 5th in Wisconsin, heading west, it said the bus would be there in a few minutes, and it took 15 minutes, and I'm not complaining about that, but people might say mm-hmm. that was a gap that mm-hmm. could have been described more accurately. What might have happened and is this issue or phenomenon called ghost buses, which is a not, unfortunately, unique to Milwaukee County Transit. Is just if an operator, for example, a bus driver, is unable to work, right? They might call in sick or what have you. And so, you know, we need to replace that driver to make sure that that trip is filled. And so our struggle is to try to make sure that we have as those drivers show up for their assignment. That sometimes that doesn't happen, and we acknowledge that, and that could create that sort of gap. What about when drivers, maybe through no fault of their own, are seemingly maybe behind schedule? They've been caught in some traffic snarl. It seems that sometimes the bus will go, I'm not saying over the speed limit, but faster than I've seen urban buses go before. Uh, Is that something you're concerned about? No, that's a great question. And we meet with brand new operators in their training class. And one of the points that we all, whether it's our department or a transportation department, as a new operator is to remind them your first priority is to drive safely staying on time with a schedule will come, but as a new operator, right, you're, they're still learning their skills. We've done some things internally with the schedule to add more time at the end of their trip in their layover. So if they do arrive late because of conditions, then they have that time to make up so they can then get back on time when they turn the bus around. What about when the drivers have had to answer questions, especially early on from confused riders? And then I've also seen the security personnel on the buses being very helpful in answering questions as well. Has that questioning delay and some potentially distraction of drivers eased somewhat? I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, one of the things which I can note for the upcoming fall schedule that starts is we're going to make sure that there are more seasoned operators, you sh- I would say, uh, on the BRT. We didn't do that with the initial uh, start of the service given it was brand new and we were kind of unsure in terms of you know how it would frankly roll out. So now that we're kind of confident um, in terms of the route itself and it's you know a solid route, ridership has been, continues to climb, that we want to go back to having kind of those regular operators. So a regular operator would be someone that they pick that route and then they're going to drive it five days a week or what have you. Whereas in the past, or as, as it is now, you might get a different driver on your trip, kind of Monday and Tuesday, and then another driver on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we're hopeful that that will improve that on-time performance too. One more pet peeve, which maybe isn't just one of my pet peeves, uh, buses having to stop on Wisconsin Avenue downtown for the raised Wisconsin Avenue bridge for boats to pass through on the Milwaukee River. 
Is there any way to fix that by working with the city, you know, maybe telling bridge operators not to raise a bridge when a bus is within five minutes? Uh, what are you exploring there? So we have had those conversations uh, with our colleagues at the city. They've provided kind of good data in terms of the number of times that happens. Uh, and of course, we've expressed you know, our concern that that could result in a 10, 20 minute delay to the route. And of course, that puts added pressure on the driver than to make up that time, and which may take several hours. So in terms of a solution, it gets into larger issues related to boat traffic versus automobile traffic. And I'd have to sort of refer you to somebody over at the city, but I know that there are some restrictions in terms of when the bridges is allowed to be raised, but it's also kind of a factor in terms of how high the water is itself, which might make the ridge to have to be opened all the more often related to lake levels. But it sounds like it's something that short of like not allowing boats to come up that far north, um, I don't know what that solution would be. You know, we really haven't talked about ridership numbers. Is this uh, service working for the public? What are you seeing in the way of numbers? We're, we're very happy with the numbers. Uh, the first week of the BRT, uh, it averaged about 2,700 rides. Uh, now, just about six or seven weeks later, it's increased about 20% to 3,200 rides. And I think another important uh, point to make is that if, if we compare this year's ridership on the BRT and the other routes that were changed now compared to the, those routes that were in place last June in 2022, those routes themselves have increased 20%. So we kind of take that to be a, you know, a good measure that people are seeing the value of bus rapid transit. We acknowledge there are some issues in terms of the added transfers, but I think very big picture, you know, people are they're really using it, and it's really been kind of rewarding to see uh, those numbers climbing as they have. The rides have been free under a vendor agreement. Mm -hmm. That's going away at the end of September. Do you worry that ridership will decrease? I mean, conceptually, that's a concern, but I will have to evaluate the data as it turns out. My thinking is that it probably won't have a major effect, but it's certainly something that you know, intuitively, yes, you might see a slight decrease. So this has been a big test of the MCTS system. There's uh, already a study that you and others have been taking part in looking at potential north-south route along mainly 27th Street with some little bit of add-ons at the north and south. What have you learned from the east-west Connect One BRT that is going into your thinking for a possible north-south route? Certainly, the challenge with the, the North-South uh, Transit Enhancement Project, as it's called, which would be basically between Bayshore in Glendale along Silver Spring to 27th, and then down to all the way into the Ikea and Oak Creek. So in that case, you know, there's the opportunity, again, to widen out the stations. It's served by the Purple Line bus route today, which is like the second largest route in the system. So it kind of makes sense to choose that corridor. Also, for many reasons related to advancing racial equity uh, is another reason why we chose that. But I think the key thing is if you think you've communicated enough, you probably haven't, and you need to just sort of engage the public. So right now it's in that sort of engineering and uh, design phase, and we're meeting with uh, primarily elected uh, officials 
uh, but we're also going to things like farmers markets and other public meetings. Um, and then there will be even more public meetings kind of the, to the general public uh, this fall. And it'll be the kind of the similar situation to like with the East-West and, and the Gold Line situation, for example, because we, we would still want to keep some underlying service underneath a North-South BRT. Uh, but then how do we locate those bus stops and about how frequently should that service be and, and those kinds of questions. Tom Winter directs the Service Development Department for the Milwaukee County Transit System. He spoke with WUWM's Chuck Kornbach. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. Coming up next, we'll bring you our series, Wandering Wisconsin, where we help you plan a trip in our home state. We'll tell you about an art enthusiast destination in just a moment on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've had your fill of the beach this summer, but you want to do one last summer getaway, there's an art oasis in Wisconsin you may not know about. Eau Claire has a sculpture tour with more than 150 pieces of public art, and it's free. There are also murals and studios to check out while you're there as well. Benny Anderson is the executive director of Visit Eau Claire. He joins Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen along with Amanda Weibel from Travel Wisconsin to talk about what you could do and see on a trip to Eau Claire. So this month we're heading to Eau Claire, which I learned is known as the indie capital of the Midwest and is a destination for any art enthusiast. So to start, Benny, how would you describe the art scene in Eau Claire? Not only is it incredibly vibrant, it is rapidly growing. We're the nation's largest rotating sculpture tour after uh, in, after adding 100 plus sculptures in the last two years. Uh, we've put in uh, double digit murals every year in the last couple of years since COVID, and we continue to find more and more opportunities to grow our, our public art scene, but then also have these amazing amenities like Pablo Center and uh, a bunch of different acting groups that have put on incredible performances at Pablo Center. It just continues to find ways to kind of bust at the seams. Yeah, what is the Eau Claire Sculpture Tour and how can people take it in? It's a 100% free sculpture tour that runs, uh, it starts downtown, but it is expanded so much that it actually runs on one continuous tour across two different cities. So if you started in historic Carson Park with uh, the shark and Viking boat sculptures, you could walk about 10 miles of different routes uh, with sculptures at about uh, two two per block density, all the way up into River Prairie Park in Altoona. Uh, there's about 150 plus sculptures on the continuous tour itself, but another probably 40 or 50 sculptures in different park installments uh, throughout the area. So it's a nice walking tour. A lot of them follow our bike trails. You can drive good chunks of them if if you you know want to do that in in the winter or see as many as possible in one day, but all 100% free uh, to the user and uh, a great mix of different art types. We've got everything from 
chainsaw sculptures on there to scrap metal to you know the really expensive bronze you know fine art pieces uh to even a couple that were made from recycled tires this year interesting people have the opportunity to vote for their favorite installations and even purchase the pieces how does that work there's an online voting uh, through our website where you can go through and, and place your vote for people's choice. When the winner of the people's choice is chosen, we purchase it as the sculpture tour and we put it on the tour permanently. Uh, there's about 10 of those pieces that have been purchased already and artists is paid in full for that. And we get to keep another piece of amazing art that our community loves. Uh, you can also purchase pieces for yourself and when you do so, the it's actually a commission that goes to the Sculpture Tour to help support their efforts as a nonprofit. And if you keep it on the Sculpture Tour for a little bit longer, we'll typically give you a discount. But there, are, all those pieces are for sale. And we've, we've had a lot of people that use it almost like their, their little walking shopping catalog mall for, for art in the area. And the sculptures aren't the only art you can enjoy in Eau Claire. Benny, you mentioned there are also dozens of murals in the area. So what can people expect to see? Oh, there's such a wide variety of them. We have a, a project called Color Block that we do as the sculpture tour, where we give emerging artists a wall that we work with a building to procure. And then we provide their materials, we pay them, and we, we provide even some educational services for how to do murals a little bit better for those of them that are just starting out. We typically put them in bunches, you know, so there'll be uh, either six by eight murals or, you know, that five by seven kind of range, and we'll put 10 of them or so on a building and so you can see one big chunk of art at, at a time. Uh, we've done 20 of those this year and 20 last year. So in the last two years, there's already 40 new murals on top of the dozens that were already in town. But then we have a large variety of, of um, not color block murals, which are the, typically the large scale ones or the, you know, the a little bit more established muralists coming in. And there's some incredible ones. Cool. And with a thriving art scene comes galleries and studios to visit. So what can you tell me about those? We're incredibly lucky to have a, a wide variety of, of studios. You know, and they're typically bunches of artists that have formed collectives. So we've got Banbury Place, which has dozens of artists that are working in their own little studios and then put on events together like the Banbury Art Crawl, where you can come through and basically walk through a giant art fair. Uh, we've also got Artisan Forge Studios, which uh, is rebranding right now to be the 1106, which has dozens of art studios in there, as well as a gallery piece and some events planning. And a chocolate shop, which is amazing. Uh, where you can try all kinds of artisan chocolates. And then, uh, you know, 200 Main and Two Roots and a B-Frame Gallery. There's there's all these different galleries that as you wander through our our downtown and our, our shopping areas, you can find just uh, not only a wide variety of art, but a very unique uh, approach to art in many of the different galleries. You know, some of them are jewelry pieces of art. Some of them are uh, blowing glass pieces. You know, I mean, there's there's a little bit of everything for everyone in our in our town for art and amanda there's more to do and see than art in eau claire it is home to the chippewa valley museum so what can people expect to see on a visit there well becky every corner of wisconsin has its own story and the chippewa valley museum does such a great job of telling eau claire's story in a really engaging and authentic way 
You can learn about the people who have lived in the Chippewa Valley from the original Ojibwe inhabitants and their connection to the land, to European settlers and Hmong immigrants. The museum also explores the valley's economic and cultural evolution over the centuries and the changing landscape of family farms in the area. And the museum operates multiple sites. You can also purchase tickets to the seasonal Wisconsin Logging Museum, which is right next door, to dig deeper into that logging heritage. What else could people do while visiting the Eau Claire area? There is so much happening in Eau Claire. And one of the best ways to experience it all is on their phenomenal trail network. So Benny mentioned that that's a way that you can experience many of the sculptures. Uh, But if you want to get around a little quicker, you can head over to the local store and you can actually rent some e-bikes or electric scooters so that you can see more of the trail. It's a really convenient option and make more stops. You'll also want to sign up for the Eau Claire Curb Crawl or Eau Claire Brew Pass. These are mobile passports where you can earn prizes for visiting the different businesses serving up fantastic brews and curds throughout the city. And then with fall quickly approaching, you might want to add an apple orchard to your itinerary. There are some really unique options in the Eau Claire area. The glass orchard is one that I found really unexpected. They grow 11 different varieties of apples, but they also operate a glass blowing studio and retail store. So those connections to the arts are everywhere you go in Eau Claire. And then another great option is Leffel Roots Apple Orchard. This one is great if you have anyone in your travel party with accessibility needs. The orchard actually created a raised deck to surround some specially pruned trees to make it easier for wheelchair users and folks with mobility difficulties to pick fresh apples, which I think is so cool. It's really hard to believe that apple picking season is just around the corner. Uh, Where would you recommend people grab a meal or a drink? Yeah, so I mentioned those passport options, which are a great place to start. You'll find a ton of great choices, but there are so many more to explore, too. Reboot Social is a fun option. They have a really playful menu. They have these classic dishes and drinks with a twist, like an elevated PB&J sandwich. And you'll stay busy there for hours. They have a ton of classic arcade games, pinball machines, billiards, and other entertainment like duck pin bowling. Uh, That's a variation on classic bowling where the lanes are shorter, the pins are stockier, the balls are a little lighter. So it's challenging, but it's fun for folks of all ages and skill levels, in addition to that great food. Another terrific dining option is Valley Burger Company. They promise food that is local, handmade, and delicious, and they, they certainly live up to that reputation with each and every dish that they serve. They have a small but carefully crafted menu that features burgers, And I am guessing you are going to find your new favorite when you visit there. And what about some places people could stay on a trip to Eau Claire? Well, we've been talking about how much this community loves the arts. So you will certainly be immersed in all of that if you stay at the Oxbow Hotel. It's a boutique hotel that has locally produced artwork that lines the common areas. You'll also hear fantastic local musicians playing in the courtyard, which connects the two historic buildings that make up the Oxbow. And I was astounded by how deep their commitment to local extends in the design of the rooms as well. Uh, They actually have handcrafted wood furniture that was made from trees that once grew in Eau Claire. Um, So, so many connections to the area. Each room is also equipped with a record player, so you can check out the vinyl collection in the lobby and set the soundtrack for your Eau Claire getaway. Could each of you share your favorite piece of public art that people can check out in Eau Claire? Man, that is such a hard question. Um, for sculpture, I think my favorite piece right now, it's its a pretty tough tie between 
uh, three pieces, one from the chainsaw exhibit that we just got uh, done, which was at the museum. Uh, we have 12 different chainsaw carvers that come through and, and carve these pieces from these 10 foot logs over, over four days. And there was one that was made by a Japanese sculptor named Takao Hadashi, uh, which we're actually putting on the sculpture tour. And it's a monkey who is trying to be picked up into the air by a vulture balancing on the jaws of a crocodile. And his speech about uh, why he created that was was about never giving up. And I just thought that that was such a, an incredible message, you know, after everything that our tours and partners had gone through in COVID and, and in growing this city. Uh, and it's a, also a very cute piece with, you know, a, a very cute monkey. Uh, otherwise, the giant shark on the sculpture tour is amazing. Uh, but some of our color block ones have been uh, incredibly cool this year. But I have um, young children, and there is a, a mural that is on Banbury Place's walls of a young girl uh, being taught to tie her shoes by her father. And I think I almost tear up every time I drive by it as I'm getting ready to drop my kids off for school and knowing that her father came to help her paint that mural every day was just a really cool story. Oh, I love that. And Amanda? Well, I agree that this is a really, really tough question. It is so hard to just pick a favorite. And one of the things I love about the Eau Claire Sculpture Tour is that they rotate new artwork in every year. So you might have a favorite, but there's still a reason to come back. It's fresh and exciting. Whenever you visit, you're going to find new artwork to enjoy. Uh, Benny mentioned all of the great murals. So I actually grew up near Eau Claire and have some connections to some of the artists who have gotten to participate in that mural program. And so Nash the Astro Giraffe is one that is a favorite of mine uh, that I always like to go visit or if I'm bringing new people to Eau Claire, make sure that it, it's something that we stop and see. But there is just something for everyone. I'm always finding something new that I add to my list. And no matter what your taste is, you're gonna find something to enjoy and uh, explore further. Amanda and Benny, thank you for joining me for Wandering Wisconsin. Thanks for thank having us. Thank you for having us. Amanda Weibel is the Communications Officer for Travel Wisconsin. Benny Anderson is the Executive Director of Visit Eau Claire. They spoke with Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen for our monthly series called Wandering Wisconsin, where we help you plan a trip right here in our home state. You can find other Wandering Wisconsin segments at wuwm.com, and you can also get it as a podcast. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Sam Woods join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Lena Tran, Emily Files, Mayan Silver, Chuck Kornbach, and Taryn Powell from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Reeby is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valerio Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon, where we'll tell you about a doctor known as the Angel on Snowshoes. We'll bring you her story and tell you about the use of AI-powered security cameras in Wisconsin. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.